This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. This is a science podcast for June 3rd, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up, what did the historic Maya know about the stars? Producer Megan Cantwell and contributing correspondent Josh Sokol discuss what archaeological ruins and ancient texts reveal about Maya astronomy and why it's so crucial to collaborate with living indigenous knowledge holders. After that, we hear from researcher Mike Carney about a special kind of grasshopper, one that reproduces asexually. They're all clones, no males needed. He talked to me about how rare this kind of reproduction is and why, according to his study, sometimes not shuffling your genes from generation to generation pays off. I'm Megan Cantwell, and joining me is Josh Sokol, a contributing correspondent at Science. He's here to discuss his story this week, which delves into the restoration of the historic Maya's stargazing knowledge. This field has been traditionally studied through archaeology and the decipherment of ancient texts, but many hope that collaborating with living indigenous Maya will illuminate the field even more. Thanks so much for joining me, Josh. Thanks for having me. When did Western scholars get interested in exploring the astronomical knowledge of the historic Maya? Over a century ago, a European scholar in Germany got really interested in one of the very few surviving Maya manuscripts and was able to decipher that there was a table that was doing very detailed tracking of the planet of Venus. And this was at a time in which Europeans couldn't read Maya hieroglyphs and potentially no living people could in the world because of colonization. Ever since then, there has been this investigation in archaeology and in Maya hieroglyphics to try to understand what it was that they were doing. What was the role that this astronomical knowledge played in a larger worldview and in a larger knowledge system? Some of these knowledge systems are still in use today, and you actually got to go see them in action. How did that help inform your story? I was super fortunate to get to report 
on scene both with a group of Quiche daykeepers in Guatemala and then some at the Yucatan. So much of this knowledge is specific to place that you're standing from a particular perspective. You're looking at things in nature that are visible at a certain time. And it was just very powerful to see people living today participating in very longstanding traditions who feel that connection to place and to time. One of the ways that this knowledge system pervaded daily life was through calendars, and some of them are still in use today. How exactly did the way that the historic Maya kept track of time relate to astronomy? It seems like a big past and present focus of Maya culture has been tracking time and tracking cycles of time and thinking about when those cycles interact with each other and when they converge. So you have this 260-day sacred calendar, which is used for ritual life. The historic Maya and some present-day people also looked at a lot of celestial cycles. So we have records of very detailed quantitative tracking of the position of Venus in the sky that was being done maybe the 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries. There's a really sophisticated tracking of the phase of the moon and prediction of eclipses. It seems to scholars who are working with present-day Maya people that there was a lot of interest on keeping track of where you were in these various cycles and finding days that seemed cosmically, spiritually, and scientifically significant to plan out public life and personal life. And in your story, you, of course, don't just touch on the calendars. You touch on a variety of different threads that show how deeply intertwined astronomy is in my culture. One of the things you touched on was about city structures and pyramids and how the Maya ruins also show this connection. Could you talk about that? There's been this field that's existed for a long time, but was certainly popularized and exploded in like the 1980s called archaeoastronomy, which was all about looking for architectural clues in these ancient cities that showed that the builders were very interested in particular celestial phenomena. These surveys using LIDAR are really important because they allow people to measure many different Maya sites together and look at the orientation of the site. It takes it from this case-by-case on-the-ground speculation to a statistical study of, I can get dozens of these together over a big area and I can make a more sophisticated argument that There was a cosmological worldview that drove the planners of these buildings to make them all this way. Are there similarities between different cities and how they were laid out? And does that kind of point to similar rituals and relationships there? There's a particular structure in Maya architecture, and this is called an e-group. And it's this central plaza in a city. It has this long horizontal platform on the east, and then has a pyramid over on the west. And the assumption of archaeoastronomers for a long time, has been that this structure is a way to get people looking over at the rising sun. That if you stand on the pyramid in the west, you look east towards the sun coming up, and on particular dates, you see the sun rise over the opposite platform. And that might be a way to mark a planting or a harvest festival for agriculture. And it might be also a way to organize religious festivals and public life. There's this kind of macro level view of the structure of cities, but you also mentioned in your story that there's inscriptions and finer details too that you can see within these ruins. What is that kind of unveiled about their relationship with astronomy? Maya history is really long. In the early parts of it, 
most of the records that seem to be astronomical are these indirect clues from building layouts and things like that. But as you get to this period that scholars call the classic period of Maya history, you have impressive stone architecture and sculpture and artwork, and you have rival city-states that are fighting. In that period, there are a ton of inscriptions about, let's say, dynastic history, the ruler and their family. And those inscriptions commonly also feature astronomical information, especially the specific phase of the moon at the time or a connection to past cosmological events. I was really astounded by how accurately the historic Maya could track some of these astronomical cycles, such as the lunar month. Yeah, it's pretty cool. The lunar month, which is the space between a full moon and a new moon, is not an even number of days, but they wanted to be able to predict in advance what phase of the moon you would be at on a particular day. And they figured that out. They figured basically out to very high precision every month, how much does it get off given that the lunar month isn't exactly 29 days. They were super advanced and they must have done it over decades or centuries worth of observation and record keeping. How long did it take for Western science to kind of have this sort of grasp on astronomy? At the time that these Maya scholars were keeping these records, they were world leading in precision. Even later, the sort of precision that they achieved with tracking the orbit of Venus was also world leading. But Europeans did not respect that or appreciate that until relatively recently. Right. Not only did they not appreciate the knowledge, but colonizers actually destroyed written books known as codices that the historic Maya wrote that detailed all of this rich astronomical knowledge. Is there any sense as to how much of this history we've lost? There's four surviving Maya codices. I asked a scholar how many may have existed. And she told me hundreds or thousands that likely every community would have had daykeepers serving it, people who kept knowledge and knew these various things. And most of them would have had a book to consult. So the scale of the destruction of that written knowledge is vast. Of the remaining texts that we do have, what have researchers learned from reading and deciphering it? They seem to be almanacs, kind of like a farmer's almanac, which are just tracking the progression of cycles and what happens as you go through various cycles. That's really cool. Was there any particular text that stood out to you or is there any that have more recently we've really learned a lot about? Of these four Maya books, the most significant for learning about Maya astronomy has always been the one in Dresden, Germany, called the Dresden Codex. In my reporting, it was just interesting to talk to epigraphers who are trying to interpret this book today. It has these quantitative tables and correction factors, and it also has illustrations of what appear to be deity figures representing Venus and other deities interacting. This is a document that is astronomical and astrological and cosmological all in one, and it's a fascinating thing to learn about and to hear about. Is there a reason that they survived in these cities, or what, what's kind of the history there of how they moved from where they originally were written to where they are now? They just turned up. Oh, wow. There is not a clear chain of custody. I'm not sure about for all of them, but the Paris Codex was just uncovered in a pile of papers near a chimney, and it was covered in soot, maybe in the 1850s or something. The one in Dresden was also uncovered at some point in Europe. So they were smuggled out or looted the ones that turned up in the hands of someone who could recognize, hey, this is a weird writing system that's significant, those survived. Is there 
any plans for like repatriation or anything like that of these ancient texts to the Maya people? I don't know about active movements to do it, but I mean, there should be, in my opinion, as, as a reporter. So you have uh, four texts from the Yucatan, which are of incredible historical significance, and they're held in Madrid, Paris, Dresden, and New York. Seems weird. The present day Maya can also provide a lot of insight, right, into these archaeological discoveries and this ancient text. And it was really interesting to learn about this new kind of approach where people are combining the indigenous knowledge that people have along with what Western science has kind of been doing within the past few decades. Could you talk a little bit about this new approach, cultural astronomy, and is it widespread? Cultural astronomy seems to be growing in popularity. And the idea really is that the way to forward the study and understanding of my astronomy is not just to go in these books and to look at the architecture. It is to collaborate with living indigenous Maya. And that means not just treat them as anthropological informants who get mentioned in the paper, but to really work with them as friends and peers and experts. Have you found that some of the Indigenous Maya's approach and the questions that they might want answers to might be different than some things that Western scholars have kind of envisioned. I think that there is a lot of overlap. For Western scholars, it's a privilege to work with Maya people because the cultural sensibilities of, say, present-day Maya daykeepers, that's the closest you can get to the motivation of the people who did track Venus really in this super quantitative way. For the indigenous people that I was privileged enough to meet for this story, they are very interested in recovering this knowledge as a way to be close to their ancestors and participate in their own culture and history. And they're very sensitive of the fact that so much of what is known about, quote, the Maya is held in libraries in the Western world. So they're excited to participate. They deserve to participate. And this cultural astronomy approach hopefully gives both sides a way to grow and learn together. There's a lot left to explore, but what have you found through your reporting are kind of the most salient questions at the forefront of people who are doing this research mind right now that they're trying to better understand? It's very fascinating for Western scholars now to start thinking about who the Maya astronomers were, because we know that they had centuries and centuries of records. They were participating in this larger knowledge structure. They were advising rulers kings. Who are these people? And what was their scholarly network like? How did they stay in touch with each other? How did they teach each other? I think that that's of great scholarly interest. I think that for people interested in the cultural astronomy perspective, one of the biggest questions is just how much of this star knowledge is still out there and can be revived and restored and appreciated and recognized. There's a lot of stories that both have cultural importance about constellations or stars. There's also a lot of astronomical knowledge that's practical, like how to coordinate agricultural activities depending on what's happening in the sky at different times of year. It's very exciting because a lot of this relates to continuous current practice, that it is possible for many, many living people to look up and see the same natural phenomenon their ancestors saw and connect to it. And I think that that's like a very powerful driver for everyone involved in this work. Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you. Josh Sokol is a contributing correspondent at Science. You can find a link to his story at science.org slash podcast. Up next, we have researcher Mike Carney. We discuss an army of clones, grasshopper clones, all descended from one female 250,000 years ago. 
This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Now we have researcher Mike Carney. He and his colleagues wrote This Week in Science about why organisms have sex. Kind of an important question, but not easy to answer in a lot of ways. The group took advantage of a natural experiment, a grasshopper that reproduces asexually, living near two close relatives that do continue to reproduce sexually and looked at differences in their lifestyles, their success in their environment, and their genetic diversity. Mike is here to talk about what they learned. Hi, Mike. G'day, Sarah. I thought it was obvious why organisms reproduce this way. Sexual reproduction introduces genetic diversity. This is the grist for adaptation. Shouldn't you be asking why these grasshoppers aren't having sex? Yeah, I mean, we know how different siblings are. Uh, Sex mixes up genes and creates new combinations. So you think, yeah, that's a great thing. But, you know, natural selection operates by favoring whichever lineage leaves the most descendants. So imagine if you have a species that has half male, half female, and a gene evolves in that population so that it becomes all female when it reproduces, then it's doubling its reproductive rate because the females actually have the baby. So if you swap all the males for females, the growth rate of that gene or that the spread of that gene is going to be super fast. So that's the real puzzle. It's called the twofold cost of sex. From the gene's perspective, and everybody's reproducing pretty much clonally, you're always winning, right? That's right. But if you're reproducing sexually, chances are you may or may not make it into the next generation after this event. Yeah. So whatever the advantage of sex is, it has to pay that twofold cost. Mm-hmm. We know there's an advantage to genetic variation, but that advantage has to pay the twofold cost. That's the paradox. Really interesting. So you got this natural experiment with the grasshoppers. Why don't we talk a little bit about these guys? So what kind of grasshoppers are we talking about? And when it comes to the ones that are going about things asexually, how are they reproducing themselves? It's from a very Australian family of grasshoppers. <laughs> They're called matchstick grasshoppers. There are about 250 species in Australia. This one lives out in the desert. It feeds on shrubs and trees. They're a beautiful green grasshopper with colorful markings on them. We go out there in the summertime to collect them and it's quite hot. You just shake a branch into a cloth bag and they fall in. The one that we studied is the one that uh, has evolved to become parthenogenetic. What exactly does that mean? Parthenogenetic is the technical term in animals where there's virgin birth. They're all females. So when they reproduce, their meiosis is altered. We actually know how they've changed their meiosis. They've actually doubled the chromosomes before they go into meiosis. That's how they do it. It's actually quite a simple change. Yeah. If you know about meiosis and you think that through, you'll see that that results in cloning. So it gets rid of all the scrambling. Right. So when you make an egg, instead of cutting off half your chromosomes and saying, here's half, dad's going to provide the other half, you say, here's a whole set of chromosomes. We don't need a dad in your egg. There's just the whole set's already there. 
Exactly. And you might know that in meiosis, the chromosomes swap bits with each other. And so it's usually the one from the mother and the one from the father, chromosome one from the mother and chromosome one from the father will swap bits with each other. But because these grasshoppers double their chromosomes before they do that, then it's the identical copies that pair up and swap. So that just makes no difference. <laughs> so tricky. They're this very complicated way of avoiding any kind of shakeup of the genetic material before reproduction. The other complication, though, is that they're hybrids. Right. Yes. <laughs> This brings in their two close neighbors, right? The ones that you compare them to. That's right. What does it mean to be a hybrid? You know about mules. It's a cross between a horse and a donkey. The horse and the donkey are about as genetically distant as the two species that cross to make this parthenogen. So I think about like 4 million years since they separated. So that's really different when you put genes together that have been apart for that long. Usually things don't work out. And in a mule, the mule can't reproduce but it actually has some properties that the horse and the donkey don't have. And it's actually superior in some ways in that it's got more strength and endurance. So sometimes this happens. It's called hybrid vigor. So that's what's happened with these grasshoppers. You've had two species cross and some, for some reason that's triggered the parthenogenesis. And then you've got this clone army of hybrids that have marched across the desert. These closely related species are living alongside each other and some are reproducing sexually and some are reproducing asexually. How different are their genes now? Like since they split off, how many years ago was this hybridization event? And are these parthenogens all clones of each other? I'm super curious about what happened to their genes. I was super curious too. So (laughs) actually they don't co-occur. Their ranges butt right up against each other. They don't seem to be able to live together because the males, I think, try and breed with the females and waste their sperm and the females breed with the males. And actually, if the female parthenogens cross with a male, they'll get an extra set of chromosomes and that turns out to be no good for them. But they've spread from there about 2,000 kilometers or 1,200 miles all the way to the other side of the country and then left the sexuals behind. And I always wondered... Were there a whole lot of clones formed by a whole lot of crossing events between these two species? So you have like a diverse clone army, and maybe that's why they're so successful. And there was a little bit of evidence that that might be the case with some early studies of their genetics. We used a powerful new technique called SNPs. And basically, we had 1,500 genes that were variable that we could compare to see how many different clones were there. And I was actually really shocked to see there's just one. There's hardly any variation in these clones. There's a little bit, but that little bit of variation has happened since the origin and suggests something about their age that suggests they're about a quarter of a million years old. So there's a little bit of diversity that's happened since then. Going back to this diversity that the parthenogens have some small buildup of diversity over this quarter million years. How does that compare, you know, when we look at the sexual species that they uh, hybridize from? The sexual species have a lot of diversity across the species, but also within a population. And that variation within a population, they're able to mix together and make lots of different combinations, just like we do in our species. We have lots of variation among our offspring. So the parthenogens have none of that. But the parthenogens being hybrids, they have a lot of diversity within an individual. So we call that heterozygosity. When we all have two copies of our genes, and when you have two different copies for a given gene, and the two copies thing is good because if one of those genes mutates to become a problem, we've got the backup copy. We have a lot of genes that are mutated in a bad way, but they're masked by the other copy. That's called a recessive gene. So 
Often when people try to make superior crops or lines of animals in farming and agriculture, they cross, they make hybrids and they try and increase the heterozygosity to cover up more bad genes. The other thing we wondered was, were these hybrid parthenogens a bit superior in their traits in the same way that, you know, a mule is superior in some ways to a horse and a donkey? This is at the individual level. They might have a robustness that's not present in those sister species. Yeah, that's right. When you looked at that, what did you see when you compared the parthenogens to the sexually reproducing ones? There was no major difference. There was no evidence that they were superior in any way. One of the species had a higher tolerance to temperature than the other one of the sexual species that crossed, and the parthenogens were just in the middle. They weren't extreme. That also surprised me. I've been studying this system since 2003, so you know, about 18, 19 years. And the whole while, until we got these recent results, I kind of had the idea that it was all about them becoming a hybrid. Someone's referred to this as becoming an immortal mule, you know, with parthenogens that are hybrids. And that's what I was expecting. And then we found there was just one clone and we did the comparisons and there wasn't any advantage from being a hybrid. Also interesting, though, one of the advantages of sex is you're supposed to be able to get rid of bad genes. And so parthenogens are expected to just keep getting sicker and sicker in a way. It's like a ratchet. It's called Muller's ratchet, where you get a new mutation, but you're not getting rid of any of the old ones. And so you just keep getting loaded up with mutations. Another possibility was to see that they were less fit than the sexuals, but they're not. They're just the same. These parthenogens aren't just surviving. They actually spread quite a distance in their range. They've gone about 2,000 kilometers. I mentioned they, they live in trees. There's a feature that they've crossed called the Nullarbor Plain which is Latin for no trees. <laughs> and so somehow they got across that. And, and these are wingless, by the way. I never mentioned that. They're wingless grasshoppers. So they've just hopped that far. I guess after we realized, well, there's no hybrid vega. It's not an army of different clones. It's just one. You know, I was really appreciating, well, if you're able to start a population from a single female because you don't need to find a mate, you have no inbreeding problems because you're cloning, your population growth rate is doubled. So in fact, you can sort of tolerate double the normal mortality rate, that makes you a very superior colonizer. And I guess that explains how they got across the Nullarbor Plain after evolving to be parthenogenetic. Well, this really gets at the big why question. Like, why isn't everybody going clonal at a certain point in their species history? It's a really good question. It's in a way more mysterious after what we found with this grasshopper. This grasshopper is one of the few natural clones we can look at. They're a little bit like fossils. You don't find many of them, but it's one of the best studied ones. So what we think this means is that it must be just really hard to evolve. There must be, you know, a really unique set of genetic circumstances for that. You know, I mentioned that doubling of the chromosomes before meiosis, that disturbance of meiosis. There must be some very specific situations where that sort of thing's going to work. And, you know, there are other lineages that just never evolve this, like mammals never evolve parthenogenesis. And there's a thing called genomic imprinting, which prevents that. Amphibians and fish they almost get there, but they remain sperm dependent. There's a need for a male to mate with the female to trigger the development. So it seems just like a you know, real obstacle course to get to parthenogenesis for some reason. And that seems to be the reason we don't see it very often. Very interesting. So we're not, we can't say it's rare because it doesn't work anymore. <laughs> like We can't say we don't see parthenogens because when they come up, they die out because they're not able to cope with their environment. This is kind of saying the opposite. It's just rare to get them. So that's why we don't see them. Yeah. I mean, these ones we're studying, these grasshoppers appear to be about a quarter of a million years old. Maybe after a million, things go badly, but in the short term, seems fine. Yeah. I mean, that's something that would be really difficult to understand is 
how dangerous is this over the long term? You know, is it riskier cumulatively, but in the short term, you're doing great? Well, we only see one in a thousand species that are pathogenetic. So it seems like they do die out. Yeah. But natural selection is all about in the short term. And in the short term, we're not seeing it popping up everywhere and taking over the world. And that is still a mystery. Thanks, Mike. No problem, Sarah. It's fun to talk about this stuff. Oh, yeah. Mike Carney is a professor in the School of Biosciences at the University of Melbourne, Victoria. You can find a link to this article and a related commentary at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy and Megan Cantwell. Special thanks to Megan Cantwell for her interview this week. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.